be a good, good week to elect somebody to something. Uh, if you want them to serve. Guys, I'm turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to pick up with verse 10. And it's a, this is a section that probably you hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to. But I'm telling you what. It's got my blood pumping this week. Just, just looking at this, verse 10, we're going to see how it's connected to what we just studied last week. It's very important. You know, as you're turning, let me just, just uh, think with you for a moment about what makes us really happy. You know, we were just singing that hymn, Rejoice, ye pure in heart, rejoice, give thanks and sing. And it's a good thing every once in a while to ask ourselves, what makes us happy? What really gives us joy? You know, if you watched... Uh, Football last week, uh, that LSU-Florida game, you know, LSU was just that close to being gatorized, you know. And, uh, and Les Miles just made these incredible decisions. You know, they had, what was it, five fourth-down conversions? Uh, they were 5-0 and oh on fourth-down conversions, and especially those two on that last drive and scored the winning touchdown. And, you know, those crazy Cajuns down there just going nuts, you know, they had... 80,000-plus people in the stadium and another 75,000 outside the stadium. I mean, these people were going crazy. They were happy. Bayou Tigers, you know, Bengals won a game. And uh, they were very excited. And there are certain things that get us excited. Uh, My brother-in-law, Bill Thompson, last year, just thinking about it. You know, when your son-in-law wins the Super Bowl, there's something to get excited about. You know, or when your meathead son marries a wonderful woman. Yeah. I've had that happen twice, and I just, man, I just get you excited. Or, you know, you get happy when, when those college students get out and they, they get a job. Man, a job. They start earning their own money. They come off your payroll and off your car insurance, you know, and no more tuition bills. You just think, man, I just, life doesn't get any better than this, you know, and all the kids have gone, the dog dies, and you're there just sitting there with a the lady, you know, just saying, man, this is life. You know, I forgot what this is like. There are certain things that, that make you happy. Jim, Jim Gainier, he was, uh, he's first cousins to uh, one of our generals, General Kennedy. She's, I think, the first general, uh, lady first general, uh, lady general we had. And so she's a big deal, you know. So Gainier, a few years ago, gets, gets to spend the night in the White House, you know, and he's down there on the ground floor. He's in, in his quarters there with his sons and, you know, jogging by as the president. And, uh, of course, it didn't matter to Gainier that half of Arkansas had been in the White House before he got there. But, but uh, Clinton's jogging by, and he, he sees Gainier in there with his son, so he just stops, goes in, props his feet up, and just has a little conversation with him and asks the boys if they want to meet the Secret Service agents, and he calls them up, and they come down. I mean, hey, that's something to get excited about. You know, Gainier was happy when he got back. He had something to talk about. Or, you know, Kim Wilson, I don't know if you got his email. He, he had a, has a meeting here. He's supposed to be here October 25th for a special meeting in our church. And he sends an email out and he says, sorry, I can't make it. Uh, I'm going to be throwing the first pitch in the second game of the World Series. Um, you kidding me? Wow. You know? And uh, he was happy. I'm happy. I'm asking him if he wants to go out here and practice a little bit. You know, I'll catch balls for him, see if he can throw a strike, you know, like the old days. I mean, there's certain things like that just really, really get you going and get you excited. Or, you know, you could take Coakley, you know. UT wins one game. He's excited. That's all the time. Uh, yeah, hey, wears an orange shirt, you know, and everything. He's got his orange wardrobe back in play. You know, one, one win. That's it. And uh, so it depends on who you are. But, you know, there are certain things that get us excited. And what the hymn we just sang and what the text we're reading and have been reading tells us that there's something, there's something even deeper, something even greater that brings joy. To God's people. 
It's interesting, if you, if you look at some of the texts that are out there in the bookstores about what makes people happy, it's kind of a mystery. You know, money doesn't actually do it. Physical health doesn't actually do it. Relationships tend to in a, in a meaningful, meaning, meaningful purpose in life. But here, what you find in the text, it explains what really makes a, a human being ultimately happy, joyful. And if you pick up at the end of the last text we looked at, you'll see it. He says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And look at this. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I want you to notice that text because what we're going to read today and study falls upon that. It's talking about this inexpressible joy of our salvation. Now he's going, to, he's going to explore, he's going to pry into that salvation and give us some more reasons why this is really an incredible thing. Only credible because of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. That's the only way we can possibly believe this. It's so outrageously uh, joyful. But let's pick up then with verse, verse 10 and see what he says about this salvation. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you Searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Now, let's notice in the first three words in English of this text, we must concern ourselves with our salvation. We must think about it. We must contemplate it. Peter says concerning this salvation. Now, when we think of our salvation, what what do we think of? Those of you who are saved, those of you who know Jesus Christ, you know that you know him savingly. You know you're going to heaven. How do we normally think of our salvation? Well, we think of it sometimes as fire insurance. And that's not all bad, having fire insurance. Uh, so, and that brings us comfort. Or when we think of our salvation, we might think of forgiveness. All of our sins being forgiven. And that gives us uh, freedom from a guilty conscience. Or we might think about our salvation, we're just being loved. And loved particularly as sons and adopted as sons. And that gives us a sense of assurance, because once you've been adopted by God, he's never going to to break off that relationship. Or when we think about our salvation, we might think about conversion or transformation, which gives us power. We go into this life with with a new spiritual power, a new power in our hearts and our souls. But what what we're going to notice here, we've already seen it, is that when Peter thinks about salvation, he's emphasizing glory, glory that brings us joy. And I'd like to suggest to you that the majority case in the scriptures, or at least in the New Testament, when we speak of salvation, we're talking about the ultimate glory being saved from the final destruction and being saved into the very presence of God with our whole bodies and our souls transformed. Now, this is the kind of of joy that you find throughout the scriptures with, with Nehemiah, those of you who are Second Presbyterian, we've been studying Nehemiah. Remember in chapter 8, Nehemiah says, 
This is a day sacred to the Lord. Don't grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You find the same thing with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. He sends the apostles out, uh, or the 70, out two by two. And they come back rejoicing that the demons are subject to them. And he says, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to them, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then he, we are told, is filled with joy by the Holy Spirit because God has chosen to reveal these things to little children, to people that you would least expect. So the, so the, the Lord Jesus Christ derives great joy from the contemplation of heaven and particularly in the way in which God does it, as we shall see in a little bit. You find the same thing with the apostles in, in Acts. They are just full of joy. And with Peter and the others go before the Sanhedrin and they're challenged there and then they're beaten. What do they do? They leave rejoicing for the sake. They, they were able to suffer for the sake of the name Jesus Christ. Full of joy. Paul talks about the same thing in Philippians chapter one. He's remember he's imprisoned and he says, yet I will rejoice. And then he says to us in, in Philippians chapter four, rejoice always. I will say it again. Rejoice. So no matter what your circumstances, we learn not only to be content with a holy resignation. No, we abound in joy. Why? Because of our salvation that is leading to glory. And so we see with Jesus Christ, his sufferings led to glory. And we saw last time our sufferings also eventually lead to glory. And this leads to great joy. So we want to be sure and concern ourselves with this salvation. Now, let's first of all consult the Old Testament. And you'll notice this Hebrew word here, yasha. And if you want to be absolutely correct in this English transliteration, after the last A there, you can put a little reverse apostrophe. That's another Hebrew letter there, yasha. And that's the word for salvation. Now, let's look and see what the Old Testament says about salvation. Let's dig in. Let's concern ourselves with this. First of all, in the Old Testament, we learn that we need to be saved. In Exodus 1 through 14, the people need to be saved. They are, they are under the oppression and, in, and enslaved by the Egyptians. In Deuteronomy 20, they are threatened by the neighboring tribes around them when they're going through the wilderness. In Jeremiah 30, uh, we find that they are in exile. They need to be saved. They're exiled from the city of God. In Jonah 1 and 2, of course, Jonah needs to be saved. He's been thrown over the ship. He's getting ready to drown and asphyxiate. So you have threats of annihilation, threats of alienation, threats of asphyxiation uh, that come to the people in the Old Testament. And then secondly, you'll notice in the Old Testament, only God saves. In Exodus 14.30, for example, uh, you'll find there that when the children of Israel were being threatened uh, by the Egyptians in Exodus 14.30, we're told that day the Lord saved Israel. Yaksha saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. So he defends us from our enemies. You'll notice the same, for example, in Jonah 2.9. When Jonah had gone blub, blub, blub down the water, a whale came by and swallowed him or a large fish came by and swallowed him. Uh, Jonah wasn't saved when the whale spit him out. Jonah was saved when the whale swallowed him and spared him from drowning. His, we, he tells in his little poem in Jonah 2 how his feet were being wrapped with seaweed. He was down at the bottom. And this large fish comes by and snatches him up. And then several days later, he gets vomited out on the seashore. 
There's, there's an easier way to take a trip, uh, you know, if you want to know. Cruises, there's other ways to take cruises. This was Jonah's way. So he gets out, and, and uh, we know from people who have been swallowed, actually, by large fish and survived, it just bleaches your skin because of the acids in the stomach of the fish. And so Jonah probably came out just white as snow, sputtering and spitting. <laughs> and you remember what he said, Jonah 2.9. <laughs> Salvation is of the Lord. <laughs> hey, good conclusion there, Jonah. Uh, so Jonah realized he had nothing to do with his salvation, but the drowning that made it necessary. And then in Isaiah 43, verse 11, you kind of have this classic statement. Uh, let's take a look at that one. That summarizes the action of God in saving us when uh, God says, I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no Yashach. There is no Savior. Apart from me, there is no Savior. Apart from me, there is no salvation. So the Old Testament shows us clearly that we need to be saved and that God alone does the saving. But notice also, uh, number three, in the Old Testament, we find that salvation is not just salvation from something, it's salvation to something, and specifically it is salvation to God. And you'll hear how the psalmist puts it in that famous and longest of psalms, Psalm 119, uh, when he says in uh, verse 146, he says, I call out to you, save me and I will keep your statutes. Save me and I will obey your law. Save me and I will know you. So the idea is that we're saved in order that we might believe and obey. We're saved in order uh, that we might follow him. We're saved in order that we might know him. You know, Christ died, says Peter, once for all the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. So salvation is being brought to him. The Old Testament teaches us that. Then fourthly, salvation is for the world. And once again, in Isaiah, which is. You know, some scholars call Isaiah the gospel according to Isaiah because it really is the gospel 800 years before Christ. But in Isaiah 49, 6, uh, Isaiah gives this resounding call to Israel to be a missionary body when he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my Yashach, my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the salvation that God offers for those who are in need, that brings them to himself from the Old Testament, not the new, from the Old Testament was meant for all peoples of all the world, all the nations. So all this we get in the Old Testament. Now, what about the New Testament? Let's consult the New Testament. And the Greek word for the New Testament, salvation, is soteria. Some of you who study theology know that soteriology is the, is the study of salvation. It comes from the Greek word soteria. And you'll find a nice little article in your Bibles on page 1892 on salvation. But let's notice uh, about salvation in the New Testament, because after all, you remember that when Mary was pregnant... And Joseph was getting ready to divorce her because he, he assumed she shacked up with somebody. Gabriel, the angel, came to him and said, whoa, pal, we've got a new paradigm for you to consider here. People can possibly get pregnant by a miracle. Oh, really? Yes. And your fiance is one of them. 
she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and you're going to rear this child. Yes, sir. And furthermore, let me give you his name. His name is Yeshua. Yeshua. His name is salvation. His name is Jesus. You shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Ah, good. So right from the first chapter of the New Testament, we have this idea of salvation, and the very name salvation belongs to Jesus Christ. That tells us something, doesn't it? That's his purpose for coming. Now, let's find out about this salvation in the New Testament then. First of all, we need to be saved from God's just wrath against sinners. And you see it there, especially in Romans 1.18 through 3.20. You find in Ephesians 2 that we are by nature children of wrath. That's our problem. Our problem is not that we've got a bunch of Egyptians chasing us with swords. It's uh, not that we're drowning in the Mediterranean. It's not that we're surrounded by physical enemies. Our problem is God. Our problem is God's wrath, which we deserve because we've done it the old-fashioned way. We earned it. And uh, we also received it from Adam. Our very nature is odious to God. So we, we learn from the New Testament that the salvation that the, the Old Testament has been talking about is specifically to save people from the ravages of sin itself. Secondly, in the New Testament, we learn that we must receive the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work on our behalf. And you get that in Romans 3, 21 through 26, a very familiar text. Why don't we take a look at it? Because it's so, so central to this whole idea of salvation. In Romans 3, 20, he says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That is to say, nobody is going to be saved by good behavior. By giving to Red Cross or, you know, leading the Boy Scouts or going to church a lot or tithing. Nobody's going to be saved by any method of performance. But, verse 21, now a righteousness or a justification from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. So that is what the New Testament teaches us. That salvation comes through trusting specifically in the person and work of Jesus Christ in his atoning work for us on the cross of Calvary, and by his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Thirdly, we find in the New Testament emphasized that our salvation is physical and spiritual. Now, I just quoted for you Matthew one twenty one: You shall give him the name Jesus, for he shall save us from our sins. But in Matthew chapter 9, there's an interesting text about a, a woman uh, who needs to be healed. She had been bleeding for 12 years. And in verse 21, she says to herself, self. Now, she says to herself, verse 21, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. You know what the word for healed is there? Saved. If I only touch his cloak, I will be saved. And what does she mean by saved? 
She means her bleeding is going to stop for heaven's sake. She's going to be well. She's going to be whole. So in the New Testament, you'll find, especially in the Gospels, that, that salvation has very much physical implications. In fact, think about it in James 5. It just kind of occurs to me. Remember he says that if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders and pray for him and anoint him with oil, and the sick will be healed. The word is saved. So our salvation, we know, is spiritual. We know that our souls are set free from the condemnation that otherwise belongs to us as sinners. We know that we're increasingly saved from the corruption of sin as we're sanctified. So our souls are saved. But the scriptures are telling us something else. Also, our bodies are ultimately involved in this salvation. Now, the key to understanding this is the fourth thing we get in the gospel in the New Testament. That is, our salvation is already and not yet. It's already in this sense. In Luke chapter 19, you remember the story with Zacchaeus. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I'm going to have dinner with you today. Zacchaeus pops down right out of that tree and he confesses his sin. He announces his restitution for all the people he's ripped off. And he says, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, yeah, right, if. Uh, I will pay back four times the amount. So Zacchaeus is giving half of his estate to the poor. And the rest of it probably is going to be paid back for all these people he's ripped off as a tax collector. Look what Jesus said to him. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So we experience salvation today, now. Uh, and it's true. Once you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are saved now. But there's also a, a not yet to it. Turn back to Romans for just a minute. Sorry, we're doing the little yellow pages thing here. We'll, we'll get back to First Peter in just a minute. But in Romans chapter 5, at the beginning, he says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have peace now. We have salvation now. But look at verse 6. He says, since we have now, I'm sorry, you see, at just the right time, we, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, verse 9, justification, you see, has already begun or already taken place in the ultimate sense or in the first sense, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So we are justified now. That's an aspect of our salvation. We are glorified later. Aha. Here's where many of the health and wealth kind of overblown Pentecostal traditions cross the line. They realize that salvation is body and soul, but they think it's equally enforced right now. What the scriptures teach us is that we're saved in our souls now and God works miracles and heals us from time to time in our bodies now. But our ultimate salvation of our body is later. It's the old Corinthian problem of getting the not yet into the already. Some things are already and some things are not yet. 
So when we're told that healing is in the atonement, of course it is, but it's not yet for our bodies. It is now for our souls and later for our bodies. Paul says our outer nature is wasting away, but our inner nature is being renewed day by day. So our inner nature, having been saved and regenerate, is growing and renewing day by day. Our outer nature is getting older and wrinklier every day until Christ comes back physically and regenerates our bodies. And that's the reason that if you turn to just a few more pages in Romans 8, you'll see Paul be very specific about this. He says, we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. And what is this we're waiting for eagerly as sons? The redemption of our bodies. Now look at verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So we're saved in hope. So yes, we're saved in reality. Our souls are saved. but We're also saved in hope. Now this is what we get from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we ought to contemplate these things. We ought to consider And be concerned about our salvation. We ought to understand it. And lay the groundwork of knowledge about salvation so that we might abound in joy. Because as Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And without that joy, you're not going to have effect. Do you remember in Hebrews chapter 13, I think it's verse 17, is it? Where Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says to the congregation, make it a joy for your leaders Obey your leaders, submit to them so that it becomes a joy to them, he says. Why? Because otherwise they are of no use to you. So you're to make your leaders joyful so they'll be of use to you. So, gentlemen, in all of your leadership, you're only useful to people when you're joyful. And you know as well as I do, almost every book on leadership says if you want to have influence, there has to be an optimism there. There has to be an outlook that is basically bright. And not dull and cynical and skeptical and dark. And I'm telling you, the Christian faith gives you an eternal joy that transcends all your circumstances. All your circumstances, as we shall see. Now, let's turn then to the the latter parts then of this text that we're considering. We see, first of all, just concerning this salvation. That is, we must concern ourselves with this salvation. Secondly, in verses 10b through 12, we must delight ourselves in our salvation. Peter says in verse 8 that we are filled with, as the old KJV says, you remember, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's the nature of what it means to know Christ. That's the outcome of what it means to really understand your salvation. Now let's look at why this is from Peter's perspective. First of all, I want you to notice in 10b that our joy is greater than Old Testament Israel's joy. He says the prophets who spoke not of the grace that was coming to them, but of the grace that was coming to you. Isn't this amazing? I mean, the prophets did speak to their own age very clearly. They spoke forth the truth. And they chided the people, chastised them for their selfishness, their greed, their sexual immorality, their idolatry. 
And they gave prophecies both about God's judgment and about his restoration, bringing them back out of exile. So they very much spoke to their own age. They were very contemporary. But Peter says, do you realize that ultimately they were speaking about the grace that would come to an entirely different age that was beyond anything they knew and beyond anything that Israel could know? And let's notice these differences between ourselves and what the Old Testament saints knew. First of all, we love and believe in Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 8, he says, you haven't seen him, yet you love him. You haven't laid hands on him, but you believe in him. It's an amazing thing that you have through faith and by the power of the Spirit and the ministry of his word, you have beheld Christ, the Messiah, in a way that no Old Testament saint ever had the privilege to do. And I have to say sometimes we we don't even think about what a privileged age in which we live for these 2000 years when we have beheld our Messiah and have personal testimony about who he is. The prophets would have loved to know have known about who he was and the circumstances of his coming. Secondly, here's an amazing thing we learn in the New Testament. You find several references I've given you here to it. We Gentiles are grafted into Israel. We are grafted into the people of God. We are God's holy people. We are his priests. We are his holy nation. We are his chosen people. Paul says in Romans 11, we're a wild olive branch. Most of us here come from areas that were, you know, most of us here are not Jewish by nature. There's some of you that have, have some Jewish blood in you. Most of us not. We're wild people. And Paul says it took this wild olive branch. You want to know how wild they were? Well, you can turn to Romans 8. I'm, I'm sorry, Romans 1. And find out how Paul describes Gentiles like us. We're unclean. We're immoral. We're darkened in our understanding. Futile in our thinking. We've been given over to sexual immorality. And not only that, but we rejoice when others do it too. This is a description of these people by nature, these Gentiles. And look what happens in the New Testament. They're actually grafted in. This was impossible for a Jew to think of before the coming of Christ. Peter couldn't imagine it. You remember in Acts chapter 10, he had to be told three times that what God declares clean is not to be declared unclean. Three times. And then Cornelius shows up. And Peter goes and preaches to them. And lo and behold, the Spirit comes and shows him, well, indeed, the Lord is granting repentance to these crazy Gentiles. And he has to go back to Jerusalem and explain it to the brothers because they don't believe it. And Peter, who is he talking to? Well, we saw last time he's talking to Gentiles. Remember, we studied that at the very beginning. Who are are we? We're these crazy Gentiles. Peter is writing to Gentiles and telling them, that their privileges are greater than those of God's people in the ancient Old Testament. Marvelous reality. Thirdly, we have the fullness of the Spirit. Now, you can't come to God by faith without the Spirit. The Spirit was very much involved in creation and in redemption in the Old Testament. You'll find this multiple references to the Spirit in the Old Testament. Nobody could believe without the Spirit. The Spirit was regenerating people in the Old Testament. But what the New Testament tells us is that as a result of the coming of Christ, his triumph over evil and his ascension to the right hand of the father, as Peter explained on Pentecost Day, that when the Lord Jesus Christ in triumph proceeded to the right hand of the father, he and the father 
poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit upon the church so that we were full of the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit. And the very Shekinah glory that once dwelt over the tabernacle in the temple now dwells in the hearts of God's people and in the assembled church as we gather for worship. It's a powerful reality. We have the, we've been baptized into the fullness of the Spirit. And you find that the key to the Christian life, the key to Christian leadership, the key to Christian service, is the fullness of the Spirit. And you'll find in the book of Acts, Peter, full of the Spirit. Philip, full of the Spirit. Paul, full of the Spirit. Jesus, beyond measure, full of the Spirit. All in the Acts of the Apostles, showing us how the Gospel spreads throughout the nations of the world by the power of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work, the work of the church. So clearly in the New Testament, we've seen, and you'll see this in Galatians 4, for example, how now we are no longer, as in the Old Testament, under the tutelage of the ritual law. We've now grown to manhood. We're now majority status. We're over 21, Paul says, and we're now children. Full-blown heirs, not under the tutelage of the law in the same sense the Old Testament saints were. Of course the law is relevant to us. Of course we want to obey the law. When we're regenerated, when we're born again, we love the law of God, just like David said he did. But we're not, we're not trained by a, a tutor. We're trained by a parent, God Himself. And that's what happens to us in the new age, the age of the Spirit, that we've now received all the rights of sons, including having the Spirit of God who enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, to the Lord. It's an amazing privilege we have in the New Testament. Fourthly, uh, we understand more of the future glory than, than they did in the Old Testament. Well, of course we do. And in the Old Testament, you'll find the prophets regularly speaking of the grand restoration of God's people. I mean, just look at the end of Isaiah. It's amazing how the, the language of Revelation is in large part lifted out of Isaiah 66 and so, 65, 66. And so you get in all the prophets this grand picture of God's restoration, but no one could understand it the way Jesus gave it to us and the way the Apostle John gives, us, gives it to us from Christ in his vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Oh, the new Jerusalem. Not these old stones that were burned and torn apart and fallen on the ground having to rebuild them like Nehemiah did. No, a new city. And the, the, the gates are made of pearl and the streets are made of gold. I mean, who could speak of it? This glorious city. And so we find not only is the city new and coming down out of heaven, brand new and gloriously uh, focused upon the radiance of Jesus Christ, but we ourselves have glory. Ah, the New Testament explains to us, Paul says, that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. So it's not just glory that we behold, it's glory that we become. And the New Testament takes us way beyond anything that the prophets and the saints of the Old Testament would have clearly understood. Indeed, brothers, we must delight ourselves in our salvation because if the Old Testament saints said that their joy in God was greater than the joy of the pagans with their new wine and their full, their full vats, surely our joy is even greater. So it's greater than that of Old Testament Israel. He says, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. And this is the grace. The grace of Christ in its fullness. The grace of God's promises in His fullness. The grace of the Spirit. The grace of, 
of future glory that we more clearly understand. But secondly, our joy is greater than the Old Testament prophets, and that should be S apostrophe. Our joy is greater than the Old Testament prophets' joy. Now, that's one thing to have greater joy than Old Testament saints. That doesn't shock us too much. But we're told that our joy is greater than that of the prophets themselves. Now, hang on just a minute. These prophets were the mouthpieces of God. They were called Yepheth Yahweh, the servants of God, servants of Jehovah. God ministered through them personally, and they spoke the word of God. And all I can tell you as a preacher is there is great joy in reading his word and proclaiming it to his people. Tremendous joy in that. But what about being a prophet where God is speaking new revelation through you to his people and giving you insights that transcend any historical reality that is in your own present age? What a joy that is. But look what look what Peter is saying. He says the prophets searched intently and with the greatest care. They long to understand what we are enjoying. Peter says they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So notice, first of all, these great men, they knew the sufferings and the glories of Christ, but they didn't know the time and circumstances. They knew the sufferings and the glories of Christ. In other words, they knew there would be a Messiah to come. Read Daniel, the son of man. Read Isaiah and the servant songs. There are four of them right there in Isaiah that tell us the servant is coming, the servant of God. And furthermore, the prophets knew that this servant would suffer. Isaiah 53. Surely he has taken up our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and so on. So you see, the prophets knew what Peter didn't get in his days of discipleship in those first three years. They knew that, Jesus, that the Messiah was to be glorious, the Son of Man. They knew that he was to suffer. But remember when Jesus came, how difficult this was for Peter. And Peter's, when, when Jesus said, I'm, you know, I'm going to suffer and die at the hands of of wicked men. And Peter said these famous two words, no Lord makes no sense. Say yes, Lord, or you can say no you, but you can't say no Lord. But Peter did Peter. That's when he did it. When Jesus spoke of his own sufferings. And then when Jesus spoke of their sufferings, that was also created a reaction, right? Because they didn't get it. That suffering and glory goes together. Peter is showing us this. This is from the Old Testament, gentlemen. This is not new. But what the prophets didn't know were the time and the circumstances. And they longed to know that. When will this happen? And what will be the circumstances surrounding it? How will this Son of Man come about? How will God rear this little boy? Whose child would he be? Certainly, we know he's going to be in the line of David, but... How will it happen? Will the kingship be established beforehand and then he'll be born into the palace? Or how will this all happen? And if they could ever have known how it would happen with this teenager virgin Mary 
who'd be told by the angel that she would have a child and that he would grow and suffer the way that he did and teach the way he did. Oh, the prophets. They would have longed to know what we know about the time and the circumstances of Christ. You remember that Jesus said, John the Baptist, let me tell you something about him, Jesus said. John the Baptist is the greatest prophet who ever lived. But the least one in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's remarkable, gentlemen. This is better than the Super Bowl. (laughs) Coakley, this is better than winning one lousy football game. This is amazing that the prophets who served him faithfully and rejoiced in him, and they did. Look at Isaiah 35, how Isaiah just rejoices in the day that is coming. He rejoiced in the salvation of God. And they longed to know what you know and didn't know it. And what Peter is saying, do you understand how inexpressibly joyful it is for you to live in this age and to know the time and the circumstances of the Messiah? Secondly, they knew they were not serving themselves, but you. They knew that you were the big deal. They knew that this was the sign of the end of time is when you knuckle-headed Gentiles get to take part in this. And the age of the Spirit comes. They told about the age of the Spirit. Remember Joel chapter 2? And Peter says to them on Pentecost Day, this is what was prophesied by Joel. Joel knew that something special was going to happen, but he had no idea it would be tongues of fire on their heads. Speaking in foreign languages they had never studied. If he had known that. And what Peter is saying, do you see that we've, we've experienced much more than they ever knew? They knew that they were serving us. They were serving their own people in their own day, no question about it. But they knew that ultimately they were serving us. They were laying the very foundation of the gospel. And thirdly, look at this. They spoke by the Spirit of Christ. But they didn't hear the gospel you heard. They heard the gospel. In fact, they preached the gospel. The gospel is just an announcement, as Isaiah says, that God reigns. How blessed are the feet of those who proclaim good news. That's gospel. And what is the good news? Our God reigns. So they preached the gospel. But they didn't hear it like you heard it. That this God who reigns has sent His one and only Son to be incarnate, to live a perfect life, and to be enthroned as King. And He shall rule over the earth. And everyone must turn from any competing allegiance and put their total trust and submission into Him through His atoning work on Calvary and His empty empty grave that sets us free from our own death. This is the gospel that we hear. How they would long to have heard that and to know the details of it. They spoke about it in broad uh, outline, but not in the way that we've got it. Now lastly, see... Our joy is not only greater than that of Israel and greater than that of the Old Testament prophets. Our joy is greater than the angel's joy. Now, this is truly remarkable. <laughs> I mean, think about the angels. I mean, they're a pretty happy lot, wouldn't you say? I mean, they don't have to mess around with guys like us, you know, who break our promises, cheat people. You know, no, angel has to, no female angel has to worry about being lusted after, you know. It's a pretty nice place. They've got all that they want. Every note that's being sung is in tune, unlike some ones I hear around here on Thursday mornings. You know, like people say to me, Wilson, you can't sing very well, but you're loud. And that's right. That's about it. 
But you get, you get where those angels are, and they're hearing these beautiful harmonies. I mean, just read the book of Revelation. It's just singing everywhere. And they're bright and radiant. They're powerful. They're awesome. When these angels appear on the earth, what do sinful human beings do? We fall down on the ground. We think we just, we just died. We're scared to death. Every time you see an angel in the Bible, they're saying, fear not, fear not, fear not. Why? Because everybody's scared to death. These bright, radiant, powerful beings who fight a war for Jehovah. And they never lose. They never lose. They're powerful. And they're so nice. Not like goody two-shoes nice, but just nice. They're, they're clean. They're pure. They're, their motives are always perfect. They, and everybody around them is that way. And I would think that they'd be perfectly satisfied. But what Peter says is, they are peering over the parapet of heaven, longing to gaze into your heart and mind and into your experience and to understand what you know about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thing. These angels who seem to have it all don't have it all. You know who has it all? You! Now, if God had asked me how to get the gospel out to the world, I would have had a suggestion for plan A. That would be, let's hire the angels to do it. In fact, their very name, angel, means messenger. That's what they are. They're messengers. Let's send them out. And God said, no way, Jose. He said, I'm sending you. And I say, why? He says, because you're made in my image. And you're the only ones made in my image. And I will not give this noble task to anyone other than a human being made in the image of God. I will not give it off to the angels. It is your task. Lord, is this the only way anyone will hear the gospel is from the lips of a human being? Yes, that's my plan. And I put it into the hands of my noble people that I made in my image. And furthermore, the angels in all their joy, gentlemen, have never experienced the tragedy of sin itself. But you have. And you know what it's like to be in exile. You know what it's like to have enemies. You know what it's like to be enslaved. You know what it's like to feel like you're drowning. And you know what it's like to be saved. And so God says, I'm going to send people who know what it's like to be saved to talk to people about being saved. I'm going to send people who know the joy of their salvation, who really understand it and what I've done for them, who understand the peculiar status and the peculiar privilege of the age in which they live, the peculiar privilege of the knowledge that they have of my one and only Son, Jesus Christ, and who have experienced the power and the freedom and the joy and the victory of being lifted out of the mire and set on a high place. I'm sending them to proclaim the gospel. And the angels, we are told in Ephesians chapter 3, are beholding in the church the wisdom of God. And the rulers and the authorities and the powers in the heavenly places are peering upon the church, gazing at the church, looking intently to try to understand this wisdom of all wisdoms, the wisdom of God in the grace of His salvation in the Gospel, this greatest comprehensive understanding of, the, of wisdom itself. It's being enacted in the church and the angels are gazing on it. And they're saying to themselves, you know, we thought God had done His best work at creation. 
And ages ago, we saw him speak forth and something came out of nothing and worlds upon worlds and planets upon planets and solar systems and galaxies. And we were all amazed at the wonder of God's power and his wisdom. And we thought that God's wisdom was absolutely brilliant when he laid down the law for his creatures. And when they broke his law, he judged them without any missing any sin whatsoever, judged them all. But they said, this is this is beyond our comprehension. That this God of creation and judgment, in His great wisdom, would redeem these unworthy human beings who had privileges way beyond the angels. For the Bible tells us angels are not our lords, they are servants. And they look upon us as the masters of the universe. And they say, look at this lot of people. They rebelled against the Creator. They rebelled against the One who holds all time and history together. Look at them. They deserve nothing but His wrath. But look at what God has done. He has sent from heaven His own Son to be incarnate and to become one of them. And through His perfect life and His death on that ugly tree, when wicked men were able to put the Son of glory to death, He redeemed these human beings who don't deserve it. What wisdom in the redemptive plan of God, they say. They're marveling at this. And we? Well, it's just another day. It's another religion. It's another book. It's another idea. Gentlemen, this is nothing else than the wisdom and the power and the glory of God that you're experiencing in knowing Him. This is the reason, Peter says, don't worry about your sufferings. As Paul says, they're light and momentary. And Peter explains God is using your sufferings to refine you like gold, as we saw last week. And furthermore, your sufferings are taking you somewhere, and this is what your salvation is all about. It is taking you to glory. And this is what all of history was longing to understand, and you got it. So live it out. So we want to say, lastly, so what? Well, yes, don't let the turkeys get you down. And some of you are letting turkeys get you down. I got a card one time from some one of you, I think it was. And it was just a card. You open it up, and it had a poor guy, fat guy, sitting on the bottom, and it had a bunch of turkeys standing on him. Don't let the turkeys get you down. And that's still in my mind. Don't let the turkeys get you down. You have some turkeys today you've got to deal with. Hey, look, all of us have tough times. All of us have to make hard decisions. All of us sometimes get disappointed. We have griefs and sorrows. I'm not saying don't weep. I'm not saying don't enter into the sorrows of your own life and the lives around you. I'm just saying don't let them defeat you. They have no, no right to do that. Don't let anything like that get you down. Don't let your circumstances get you down. Don't let some turkey get you down. Don't get, let your own circumstances get you down. Whether you're, you're disappointed in the way you look, or your job title, or your pay, or your health, or your marriage, or your lack of one. Don't let those circumstances get you down. They can't define you. You are gloriously saved from the wrath of God into a glorious existence. So how could something like that, as small as temporary financial distress, get you down? Thirdly, don't let your own sin get you down. This is the worst enemy of all, I would say. When you've screwed up royally and you're paying the consequences and you feel like an idiot 
Well, you are kind of an idiot. You know? You're an ironhead, as my dad used to call me. Ironhead. So you've been an ironhead. You've messed up. Don't let it get you down. Why? Because the sin that Christ defeated is your sin. And that's not going to come between you and the love of the Father. So don't let that get you down. Gentlemen, we're headed for glory. Let us rejoice. Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very Son of God and the atoning sacrifice for our sins and the ruling and reigning Lord, please lift up our hearts today that we may be in touch with reality, things as they are. May we see the glory of your face today, as John did in the first chapter of Revelation, and be filled with wonder that you love us, that you care about us, that you're bringing us home to a place that you've carefully, wondrously prepared for us. Enable us then to go through this broken world with all of its disappointments, griefs and sorrows, without letting them get us down. For we, O Lord, are coming up. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.